You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. Back by popular demand to talk about Bitcoin current events is the one and only Dylan LeClaire. Dylan is one of the lead writers and researchers at Bitcoin Magazine Pro and has some of the most interesting and well-researched takes on what's currently happening with the market. During the show, we cover his use of AI and programming backtesting on-chain analytics, what's driving the recent surge we've seen in the Bitcoin price since the start of the year, and what he's personally paying attention to in the general macro overview. This is a good one, so sit back and get ready because here's my chat with Dylan LeClaire. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Dylan LeClaire. Dylan, welcome back. Excited to have you. We got a ton to talk about. Excited to be back. I think this is round three. This is round um, three. This is round here three. Here we go. <laughs> Okay, so I just want to start off because you and I have been having a private conversation about how you're using Python and you've never had any formal training in Python through AI. So like lay it on us. Like why are you doing this and what has the experience been so far? It's been pretty cool. I mean, everybody is uh, you know, I'm sure has at least if you haven't had any experience with AI, chat GPT, I mean it is the hot new buzzword in town. Wow, what a powerful tool. It is certainly mind-blowing, especially as you continue to play with it. Uh, me, myself, right? Like a, a data analytics guy, I, I look at data and, and visuals all day, every day. It's what I like to do, even if I'm not technically on the clock, per se. I had just kind of an interest in, in computer science and coding, but I never took it formally as a class and, and decided as kind of my like New Year's resolution, I was going to learn Python. I was going to learn, you know, learn how to code. And you know, behind the scenes, the whole AI thing was starting to to gain traction. I mean, this has obviously been in the works for years now. But ChatGPT three was released, and then subsequently, I think like the last month or two, four has been released. And it's mind boggling how powerful the tool it is. I mean, like again, like I I've taken five five or six you know Replit entry level one courses, not even courses, but just little mini lessons to get my my feet wet. But like far from an expert on on GitHub's or repositories or any of this stuff, and just throwing the most basic of, of questions at at this artificial intelligence thing, and in, in a couple of weeks, I've behind the scenes, I haven't released anything yet. I, I'm building out full websites, Python integrations, uh, quant portfolio allocation models, all by just describing what I want, right? Being like, you know, I instead I plot these two things pulling from this API and have it look like this and just describing it in, in very complex detail. So like, I mean, it's no special talent of mine, but what it's made me realize is that this is going to dematerialize. And I don't even know if this is necessarily a hot take, like, a, you know, there's a lot of like AI researchers and theorists and fanboys that, you know, have a similar take. And it maybe sounds like too, you know, very VC change the world. Like here's my pitch deck type of thing, but it's real. Like this is going to dematerialize millions, tens of millions, and, and you know, maybe hundreds of millions of, of kind of the white collar jobs as we think of, of them, as us Westerners think of them, specifically post COVID, right? You like, you know, everyone was just chucked on a laptop, Zoom University, Zoom uh, as a job. And now it's like, whoa, this thing is going to just chop the head off of all of these entry jobs, all of these basic jobs that can be automated. Like the internet's already done that in a way. But you know, that that excess, that slack hadn't really been 
been uh, handled and, you know, just some of the stuff that this is doing, right? Like, I think I said to you, you know, the days of like a, you know, entry level $200,000 a year thing, software engineer, you know, that learned how to code a year and a half ago, those days, they're not done yet, but they're coming to an end. Um, and I think that's just the, just the surface uh, level, right? Like how deep does this rabbit hole go? Yeah, it's totally insane. So I was trying to run a relay for Noster. I have no idea how to go into terminal and to do that type of stuff. You know, I've coded a web page in HTML and done that, and it's really basic stuff. But the running a relay through terminal, I was I had no literally no clue. And so I'm getting these error messages. I'm literally copying the the error messages, dropping them into Chat GPT. I don't even know the right question to ask. And I was just pasting it in there. And then it was responding back and it was saying, it looks like you are trying to do this. And if so, here's the steps you need to take. And then this is the, this is the code you need to paste into the terminal. And I'd be like, okay, my terminal was saying this. I don't even know how to close that screen to move to the next one. And I would type that into ChatGPT and it would literally give me the, the prompts that I needed to navigate. Like I literally had no clue what I was doing. And this thing was assisting me through the setup of something that I was a total idiot on. Yeah. And so I would imagine like your experience. So talk to people about like what you're trying to do with the site and like, cause it's not like you're trying to do easy stuff, like with the charts and stuff you're building in Python, tell people what it is that you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple couple different things I'm working on. Some of it's for uh, Bitcoin Magazine Pro, which is the research newsletter that I do with BTC Inc. or Bitcoin Magazine. Some of it just like kind of learning as I go. Like I was uh, experimenting with creating a, a dollar cost averaging back test. What's your how, what's your portfolio value and your percentage return for Bitcoin, gold, SP five hundred, and, and the long bond mm. on X date? And and you know you can select that date. And so you know I, I instructed <laughs> the, the prompt. Which honestly, I think it sounds a little bit outrageous, but I think prompting, at least in the interim, until the computer gets good enough to and figures out how to build all these things without even a, a human prompter, but prompting itself is almost like a real skill and yeah. art, uh, an art form, especially as the models get better and better. It can do essentially everything. Fine tuning that that prompt is a, is an extremely useful skill nowadays. But I was just trying to have it build. Uh, and I, I have it under apps that probably, you know, we'll put it out there in the next week or two, but just build a basic site, right? With just a homepage, you know, a couple different menu tabs, you know, HTML, CSS, Python, JavaScript. And again, like I've, I've never goaded any of this. So I like, I, I first used my terminal about a month ago saying like, and it was like, you know, paste this into here. And I was like, where, where do I paste it? And it was like, you know, entry level questions to now, you know, having a full site. And I was like, Hey, this site looks very basic. Um, have it be professionally, you know, have the style be professional, make it look like an investment website, make it look like this, this, and this here's a, here's a website link. I like the the look of this header and footer on this website, <laughs> copy it. And it did. It, it, and it made the formatting look extremely similar. So like, what does this trend look like in one year's like, I, I'm nothing special. Right? I'm just building a basic level entry website. I've seen people build Chrome extensions in, in three hours. Um, yeah, with with their voice, like there's a thing called Auto GPT that's now plug. You can plug it into uh, the Google Search API and a couple of other APIs with the Open AI uh, API key, and it can access your full computer terminal and it can auto correct its code without prompting. Right, so like this is 
we're reaching a point where it's going to accelerate. I mean, we've already hit an inflection point, I think, but it's going to get really, really, really crazy. You know, like I, we were just kind of messing around with some, some basic stuff, but like it's, I mean, I've gone from zero to uh, far from hero, but you know, instead of zero to hundred from like no experience to being, you know, somewhat competent um, and, and to no skill of my own, right. Just telling yeah. a computer in, in plain English, it's really powerful. So I've had conversations with people from my generation that are not Bitcoiners that aren't like heavily dialed into tech. And I've asked them if they've used it. And a lot of them have said, I've heard about it, but I really haven't used it yet. Has been pretty much the the consensus response. And then the couple that I've uh, that I've demoed it to, like on my phone or on my computer, they're literally just they're flabbergasted whenever I have it do some of the things. I'm curious, your generation, which there's about a two decade gap between you and me, are most people your age using this? Like, walk me through like what the the normie from from your generation is thinking about this, using this. Is it just pretty standard? Like, it's not a big deal. Everybody's just doing it, or or what's the deal? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not. It's 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 more standard. I think like people are like, oh, it's just a cool. Yeah, it's a very useful tool. Um, I think. You know, from what I've experienced, most 99% of people are underutilizing the tool compared to how, oh, yeah. how powerful it is and how, how much value it can provide if you utilize it correctly. Like I have, I have beta access to ChatGPT4 and it gives you 25 prompts every three hours and then it makes you wait uh, th- for you know, another three hours or whatever. And I, I hit that, th- that three hour limit like three or four times a day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just like just building various things, experimenting, whatever. Um, but like a lot of college kids, like that's my social circle um, currently. Um, are using it. And like, there's the, the academia is trying to catch up and like prevent it from, you know, being utilized, uh, you know, cheating, plagiarism, Which is all crazy. this stuff. You're not stopping nothing. No. You know, and the other thing that I've, I found crazy about it is you can stylize anything into any person or like you could take a 500 word prompt and you could stylize it into any person that has any type of public profile. So, like, how in the world would colleges possibly? catch people or tell them that they can't use a tool like this. Like people just need to adapt because if they're not using it, they're going to get steamrolled. Right. I mean, it's no. And like, you know, chat GPT, like I'm sure everybody and their, their mother and and tech is trying to build a, you know, an an AI model. Right. And so like, whether this is the best iteration or Google or Elon, you know, like, I don't think, uh, I think that was more just a hype announcement, Elon's recent thing. But, you know, I think that like this kind of artificial intelligence, general intelligence sort of thing is going to really, really accelerate. And like, this is what the last, the culmination of the last 20 years of the internet and Moore's law and, and all of this is coming together. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think people, people are utilizing it a lot, but not nearly as much as they should. I think it's going to completely dismantle academia and not like, you know, the, the legacy institutions, the Harvard, the Yales. The credentials there will remain for some time being, but I remember like we've had some conversations over the last two years about my decision to leave school post COVID and, you know, partially inspired by like the Jeff Booth thesis of like the internet is going to dematerialize. It already has dematerialized all of this information. It's all available. It's all for free. You can learn anything. You can do anything. And the, ba- and the barrier to that information is zero. There's it's zero mm-hmm. cost. Mm-hmm. And so like, that, you know, contrast that with going to, you know, a university and the information is no longer physically domiciled at that university like yeah. it used to be 50 years ago. Yeah. Paying $50,000 a year for that is quite the, quite the tough task nowadays. Yeah. 
the numbers don't make any sense whatsoever no. when you look at what's accessible and more importantly, what you're able to accomplish. I mean, you can go into this thing and you'd be like, hey, give me a business plan. Or like, what would be a very lucrative business that I could start that requires very little startup capital, blah, 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 right? It would give you five recommendations, something that has a competitive moat that wouldn't be impaired very easily. Like, it will consider all that stuff, right? And then you can just keep drilling deeper with this type of thing. Like, I agree with you. I don't think people are understanding the how insanely useful and valuable this is at their fingertips at literally like next to nothing from a cost standpoint to employ. And I think it's just a matter of time before it just takes the world by storm where it's fully embedded with like uh, Microsoft Office and all sorts of things that, and I think once that happens, the whole world's just going to be like, what the heck just happened? Yeah. And, and I and think like, it's coming fast, man. This is a coming fast, like a freight train. Yeah. And like, I mean, I don't even know if we want to go here because we could probably spend the whole time talking about yeah. it. But like the, the bigger idea of we're kind of at this debt super cycle, uh, you were talking about the UBI thing before any of this obviously came into the, the picture. I mean, I'm sure you probably could have seen the general trend of technology. Um, but like what if this does what we think it does? To all of these, you know, white collar jobs. Never mind the fact that you know, once everyone went remote post COVID, all these tech companies, and they're still realizing it today. Like, okay, why would I pay someone one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year when they could do it in Asia mm-hmm. for forty thousand dollars, and that's great income in some of these other countries, right? Where, yeah. where the people are just as smart and and just as hungry, if not more hungry, to do this type of jobs. But like, if this does dismantle hundreds of millions of jobs. Or at least make them disposable, not like completely dismantle them, but makes you very, very, very replaceable. Then, then what does that mean for the workforce? What does that mean for incomes? What does that mean for populace as a whole? Right? Like it's these are like big, big, big questions. And you know, Jeff Booth's entire thing is like these these are two kind of immovable forces coming coming to a head. And like I don't think there's one politician in the world that could come up here with a straight face and say they know what the result is going to be or or that everything will be fine. And if they say that, they're lying, right? Yeah, no, it is. It really is the other side of the coin of all the stuff that we typically talk about when we're talking macro and all the treasury yields and all that kind of stuff. It's this and the impact of this. I, <laughs> I think there's very few that have not read Jeff's thesis and understand the implications of these two freight trains like moving at each other. It's wild. Hey, I'm going to pull up some charts that you sent me over. And these are awesome, by the way. I really like the charts. So we'll just go through them. And for people that are just hearing the audio version of this, uh, Dylan, if you can just kind of explain what we're looking at, I'll do it for this first one. So this first one is just Dylan sent a slide of the 2023 performance of you know various indexes against Bitcoin with the sharp ratio and the total return. Go ahead and, and give us your spill on this one, Dylan. Bitcoin's obviously had a, a banger start to the year up 78, 80%, whatever it is at the at the current recording time. And you know, Nasdaq up 20%, equities broadly up. It's been kind of a, a broad risk on rally, but the the impressive thing here, and we also compare it to gold and bonds and oil. And there's, you know, I could have added 10 other kind of mm-hmm. indices to this, but uh the real like eye popper is that not only is Bitcoin outperformed everything, but on a risk-adjusted basis, it's also outperformed. So it's sharp ratio which is it just takes the realized volatility, the annualized realized vol- 
the annualized realized volatility of, of, of these assets, it's outperforming everything, right? So it just benchmarks the return relative to the risk, right? And like this is a you know sharp ratio is you know kind of how like Wall Street would define risk. You know, for the average Bitcoiner, they might not care about the mark-to-market exchange rate at every moment of the day. In fact, I think most don't, and we can see that through the data. But nonetheless, that's impressive. It says something, and you know, anybody that's worth their salt in uh, in the macro world should be uh, wondering why this is. I think if I was going to piggyback on your comment, anybody who has a sizable position doesn't, <laughs> right? Yeah. Anybody, yeah. And those are the ones that matter because they're the ones that are truly driving the price in the long term is they don't care about the hell. They look at the volatility as, as their opportunity. Every long-term holder that I've ever met that have significant amount of coins. This is an interesting metric for people that would look at this and say, well, you're not showing last year's performance and it was down hard. Like, what would be your response to a person that would say something like that, Dylan? You know, I wish I should have included the 2022 sharp ratio for the full year. And off the top of my head, I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know that Bitcoin, even though it was what finished the year down like 65% mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. from, you know, uh, January 1st to, to December 31st, in risk adjusted terms, a sharp ratio. I think it honestly did better than tech basket. It did better than the long bond for much of that. It, mm-hmm. you know, so like this, this risk-free asset class that all the, that all the banks hold that every, you know, pension fund holds on a risk adjusted basis, right? Which is what matters because if you, if you can't handle the risk then adjust your portfolio size, this is like basic yes. stuff. It did better. So yeah, it declined by 75% peak to trough, but no one went all in on Bitcoin at 69,000 and then, you know, sold at, Fifteen five. No, no one did that on the planet. And if you did, then you're obviously uh, very, very unskilled, right? But like I shared this, this stat a couple of times. It's really, really fascinating. It's like if you started dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin, and like you know, some will say mm-hmm. dollar cost averaging isn't even the best strategy. Like, okay, well you can say that, but if you started dollar cost averaging at Bitcoin at you know, quote unquote, the generational top, as of today, you're up like seventeen percent, and your average cost basis is like twenty five k, right? Yeah. So like. Tell me that and be like, okay, well, you're you're outperforming everything despite buying the top, right? You're outperforming Bitcoin, you're outperforming equities, bonds, and gold. You know, there's something there. Yeah, there really is. Let's talk through this one here. Describe this chart to people listening. Yeah. So, you know, this is the on-chain side of things. And I think this is really, really cool. Bitcoin on-chain analytics. Like people will often say, you know, it's you know, pseudoscience or it's, you know, it's hopium or whatever, without really understanding what like on-chain analytics, what the data is actually saying, right? Like we have a transparent ledger that can immutably details every single hold, spend, every single transfer on this network. So we can see with perfect accuracy, HODL, like look what the HODLers are actually doing, mm-hmm. HODL behavior with these these uh, realized prices or these uh, cost basis of short-term holders and long-term holders, which we can just say, just to keep it simple, it's you know a six-month cutoff if you held longer than six months. You're a long-term holder, and there's there's some reasons for that, right? Just like essentially, the longer that you hold, statistically, based on what we see with the UTXO set, the more unlikely you are to spend in the future. And that six-month threshold is like a pretty significant kind of barrier. After you you hold for six months, you're not really likely to to part with that UTXO, to part with that Bitcoin. So we can see basically with these, it's essentially like right, it's a it's a moving average. Think if you could have a moving average of Apple stock or the S and P 500, but instead of just the price. And the time series uh, serving as average, it was the price, and it was also the amount of shares that were traded or changed hands, mm-hmm. right? Like, and you can't see that obviously with a stock. You don't know they're short selling. There's you know people like it's a black box in in equity markets for bonds or fixed income for, for legacy assets. 
with Bitcoin, it's not. We can see, we can see, you know, okay, 65% of coins haven't moved in a year, right? And like, yeah, you know, there's on Binance, there's a million BTC of trading volume on perpetual futures in a few days, right? But like, that's just leverage. That's just wash trading. Like the actual UTXO set, we can see, we can see the data. Those are coins are not moving, right? These hodlers don't really care. And what Bitcoin does, really every bear market and every bull market, every bear market, the exchange rate crashes below really every significant average cost basis you can see, whether it's the, the aggregate average cost basis, the, the cost basis of short-term holders. Like you can think of like the quick money, the traders, the speculators, the new investors, and the long-term holders. Like the people that come in, that step in in the bear market, that acquire Bitcoin, they don't care that they're down 60, 70% from their all-time highs. They acquire more of it in real and, and know they're not going to part with these coins for years on end. Um, and that's what sets the bottom every time, right? So that's what we saw. At the end of 2022, obviously, like this, this thing is still correlated with the macro tides, but like this cycle and, and what influences it and what leads to these cycles, I think is still surprisingly not even close to broadly understood, even in finance circles, right? It's just like this kind of esoteric thing that is volatile and doesn't make any sense to the non-Bitcoin specific crowd. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Dylan, when you're looking at the performance and you're looking at the, this quote-unquote four-year cycle, do you buy into the four-year cycle? Do you, do you think that, and I'm just going to, I guess, let me frame the question as I'm saying this as well. When you take measurements in just days from the halving to the tops and the bottoms of the previous cycles, at least the last two cycles, 
there seems to be just a whole lot of coincidences with respect to the number of days from the having to the top to the bottom. And it it seems to continue to persist in this cycle that we're currently in right now. It really feels like the bottom's in, especially when you look at all these on-chain metrics. And when you look at that bottom and you look at how many days it was from the having event and you compare that to the previous cycle, they're eerily similar. So what are your thoughts? Is this just a coincidence? Is it what? I think the having plays a role. I think more so, and, and you've written some great stuff. I remember reading this back in 2019, 2020 about the mechanical aspect of the having and the difficulty adjustment and the mm-hmm, 20, mm-hmm. Uh, 20, uh, 210,000 block mm-hmm. you know, four year yeah. cycle. Yeah. Right. And how, like, how that interplay works. I think it's increasingly, I think the, the cycle remains and whether it's four years or three years or five or whatever it may be. I think it's increasingly, especially as the block subsidy goes from, it's going to be 6.25 per block to 3.125 mm-hmm. per block in 2024. I think it's increasingly human psychology study uh, and market psychology, you know, and fear and greed than it is actually the, and maybe that's a freezing cold take, but I think that plays a larger role than it, than the actual having of the block subsidy going forward. But the cycles and the, and the timing of it, and I think the having still matters. That that you know that reduction in supply, that supply shock that kicks it off. But I think more so the cycle is about, and this was the the third chart. The more so the cycle is is what that that kind of that long term holder money. And I should have overlaid the price on that chart, but you can kind of see every every top right the some amount of those holders that came in at the depths of the bear market down seventy five, down eighty, eighty five percent. Some amount of those hodlers after 5x, 10x, 20x run up, they shave some coins off. Mm-hmm. And, and the combination of that parabolic rise in the exchange rate, you know, that, that new money influx, that hype cycle kind of, you know, maybe running a bit out of steam combined with the confluence of those old holders just shaving a bit off creates that top, creates that final blow off top, you know, it's that supply demand imbalance, uh, that equilibrium is found. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden there's, a, there's just a, you know, too much supply and the, the exchange rate crashes, right? And we see mm-hmm. this time and time again, right? After the exchange rate falls 50, 60, 70%, those, those long-term holders, and, and oftentimes there's a whole new cohort of quote-unquote long-term holders, smart money, but they scoop up coins and, and you kind of run it back. And so obviously Bitcoin's more of a macro asset than it's ever been, but it is eerie, right? Like the, the timing of it is certainly fascinating. And I'd, I'd love to see what it looks like next cycle. Uh, yeah, you know. yeah, me too. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Okay. I pulled up this next one. Do you have any other uh, comments on this one? And, and also, if you do, just explain the, what we're looking at here. It's kind of the same, same cycle visualized, right? It's just, yeah. it's, you know, long-term holders, are they in profit or not? Profit or loss? Their spending patterns, their average spending price. And really, I think the interesting part about this chart, the, the Bitcoin exchange rate and the long-term holders spend price, that's not their average cost basis. That's if those long-term holders part with their coins at all and they they often don't near bottoms but if they're parting with them what's their average what's their average cost basis and right now that's about 30,000 um and i think the really interesting thing is after that the bitcoin exchange rate surpasses from the bear market lows when you know long term holders are an average underwater and and any long term holders that are spending are capitulating at a loss right on average after the bitcoin exchange rate surpasses that uh that level and they're still uh you know, a dominant, predominant majority of, of those coins are held by people that aren't giving them up, that aren't putting them back into the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when things get really, really interesting and price starts to, to run like crazy. 
because of that supply demand imbalance. It's that simple. When we look so at right the, there. when we look at the price action and basically not getting that full exuberance like we had in 2017 with this last cycle, do you think that that has any impact on where the coins are currently dwelling in the hands of like really strong hodlers, or do you think that it really didn't matter compared to the previous cycle where we did have like a blow off top? And do you attribute that to FTX and some of these other bad actors that were in the space as far as why you didn't have the the naturally maybe occurring exuberance at the top? Yeah, I think so. Cause there was there was like kind of an interesting confluence of signals. And we were we were sharing them back and forth in in the late stages of 2021, where like these on-chain metrics, some of them were were screaming like, damn, we got some more to run here, um, just compared to like traditionally how these cycles play out. And it's how inelastic the supply is, right? It's like, you know, well, geez, 70% of coins like literally aren't budging and the prices just surpassed 60,000 again and is about to break all time highs again. And for the first time in like six months, right? It's like double bubble. We haven't seen it. And, you know, in hindsight, obviously there was a whole lot of leverage, a whole lot of obfuscated leverage, right? It wasn't even transparent. It was FTX, you know, playing with customer money and being fraudulent um, among many other actors. Uh, but it was definitely, I think, like the whole crypto casino played a role, and and I, I mean, as as we should expect, right? That that whole altcoin space uh, kind of being a toxic cancer uh, to the to the Bitcoin, uh, and I think it honestly serves as like kind of a cloak to what's actually unfolding, right? It's like, oh, this this whole casino, right? Like the the Warren Buffetts of the world, and you know anybody that's taking a look at Bitcoin is just naturally groups it in with Dogecoin and Shiba Inu and you know the clown show that is 99.9% of, of of crypto NFTs right it's like oh yeah you know just the speculative bubble that's where the excess QE zerp money goes to die as that whole crypto scam and that causes most of them to miss what's happening so i do think that you know the FTXs of the world the derivatives uh that sort of thing did play a part in uh Kind of the the false signal double bubble. Honestly, I think really like the and checkmate one of the great guys from Glassnode, who's like you know, probably the best in the game with a lot of this on chain analytics stuff. Yeah, he thinks like the the true top, even though the exchange rate went higher in November than it did in April, he thinks the true top was around February March timeframe. That's when like you know a lot of the on chain stuff um, started to dwindle in momentum, and I think that's that's a pretty good take. Now, how about for the setup of this coming cycle? Do you think that because we went through such an abrupt, the head was cut off, <laughs> that those, those coins are stuffed into stronger hands or not really? I think that, yeah, I think we're seeing something really interesting unfold where, and I, I you know, it, it makes for good sound bites. I was on CNBC briefly for a couple of minutes for last call and it's like coins for one year, two years, three years, all at all time highs, right? Like 70%, 55% and 40% of coins haven't mm-hmm. moved in three years, two years, one year, respectively. So those are just like, you know, attention grabbing headlines, but there's obviously signal there, right? It's like the oh, supply yeah. is inelastic. It's a fixed supply asset where there's price agnostic buyers and holders of the asset. Mm-hmm. And the supply side is, is dwindling. It's like, you know, it's at a certain point, you can cut back the the really, and I'm a big chart guy, you can cut back the the good looking charts and visuals and all this other stuff and be like, Hey, it's supply and demand. It's pretty easy. Like this yeah. is, this is why it's going up and you don't really have to go any deeper than that. All right. I'm going to go ahead and uh, throw up the next one here. Okay. Outside of the Bitcoin conversations that we just had, let's talk macro a little bit. You provided some macro charts before you describe the chart. What are the big chunk things that you're really paying attention to Dylan? The big chunk things 
Well, broadly, I think we are in the late stages of a debt super cycle. We're in the maybe third or fourth inning of an unwind of the everything bubble in terms of, you know, a zero interest rate cost of capital, negative real cost of capital. And not that I think that we, that the system can even exist or kind of unwind from all that. I think they're going to have to aggressively reinflate things and whether it's the next six, nine, 12, 18 months. But I think that the, the train does, you know, fall off the tracks here as this is it's honestly taken a little bit longer than I would have suspected, say, at the beginning of 2022. Uh, I will say that I think the economy is a little bit more nominally resilient than I would have thought. But just just looking at historic, like, you know, history as a guide, you don't see wealth destruction in this uh, magnitude. In both absolute terms, there's the biggest bust ever. And in relative terms, it's still pretty meaningful with, with debt loads where they are globally. You don't see these things uh, happen and then th- there'd be no second or third order effects. It just doesn't happen. So yeah. I think that that asset bubble that really it's not even a, it's not a credit cycle, right? Like people comparing it to 2008 and saying, you know, well, it's, you know, look at credit or look at banks. It's like, well, no, it's, it's a duration bubble, right? It's the duration that long bond went from, from 1% to three, 4%. And that's had to reprice every single asset on the planet um, while li- while the liability side of things is fixed. It's it's yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's a pretty simple equation. And so, you know, now we're seeing that cost of capital filter in. We're going to see it filter into the interest expense. We're going to see it filter into, you know, the fiscal, the fiscal budget. We're going to see it uh, filter into personal uh, and corporate balance sheets. It just takes time. I think we do see a not soft landing. I think it's uh, whether it's, you know, hard or a massive recession is, is, you know, to be determined. But I think inflation doesn't really go away until you, you see this, uh, this labor market start to get ugly. I think that's kind of my, my, my thoughts distilled. It seems like it's coming this year. This, whatever this is, I don't yeah. know what to think, but I know there's been a lot of just really strange metrics kind of coming through in this past couple months. And I know a lot of the people in, in in Wall Street are suggesting a third quarter kind of like strong recession. I don't know if if it takes even that long. Maybe maybe it comes sooner. I I really don't know. But yeah, I'm with you. I I thought it was going to come a whole lot sooner <laughs> than what this has been. It's been very surprising to me. Very very surprising to me. I'm going to go ahead and pull up your charts here. Yeah, let's go ahead and walk through this. So you have United States military spending plus entitlements plus interest expense as a percentage of tax receipts. I love this. Here's all the costs. Here's what's coming through the door, right? Go ahead and uh, give us what you're seeing here with this chart. Just kind of overlaid, and this is two, two panes, but it shows that's me 500 in log terms because it's starting in the 60s. So if you showed it in linear terms, it wouldn't it wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't even factor in. And then uh, it's kind of the U.S. fiscal budgets. It's it's the big spending of the federal government as a percent of tax receipts. And and the important factor here is that the baseline, the you know the lowest levels that this that this uh, you know upper pane does U.S. spending, uh, the big three spending uh, cohorts as a percent of tax receipts. It doesn't even go below 100%. Right? So what that tells you is that the debt's actually never even even going down. It's it's always going up because we're the, the US as a, you know, if you think of it as a person, they're just living on their credit card. And it doesn't matter how much money they make, they always but they always borrow more and they always spend more. So that's one. And then the second thing is, and I think this is the key thing to take away from the chart, is that look what happens in recessions, right? So yeah, basically we know a recession's coming or you know, with a decent amount of certainty, the, the the data is saying that we're probably at the very least going to see a mild recession. 
And now, you know, the, the Fed's actually saying it, right? For the longest time, they're like, oh, you know, no, it's, it's soft landing. It's, it's all good. And now they're saying, okay, yeah, we'll get a mild recession. So look what happens in recessions, right? And this is for the first time in 40 years, this is happening in, with an inflation spike, right? So we see core inflation still running very, very hot, right? Like energy inflation mm-hmm. on a year over year basis is down like 30%. But the CPI is still what five percent, right? So why is that happening? It's happening because the, the labor market's super, super tight, and you still, you know, all those dislocations and all that that fiscal that fiscal spending that we stuffed into the economy in, in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one is still running its course, still piping hot. There's still excess savings, and and those are dwindling. But the consumer still, I mean, I wouldn't say strong, but they still got some month, right? So inflation's still pretty hot. Core inflation's still pretty hot. There's still a ton of uh, job openings, like I think nine million or so. We got a little bit of ways to go here, but when that recession does come, we know what's going to happen. The government, the Keynesian model, I mean, this is like literally 101, is that they're going to plug the gap by unleashing the, the fiscal authority of the US government. And um, this doesn't even, this does not even address the fragility that has been pumped into the, the overall global system over these past 40 years as they were doing all these offsets to keep everything under control. Yep. Right. So that's where I'm, I'm looking at everything you just described and then thinking about how fragile supply chains and the consolidation of enterprise and just thinking, oh my God, if, if we start hitting a recession by the end of this year, like I just, I can't even imagine what it's going to take from the printer to try to off, because that's their only tool to really offset this. Dude, it's crazy. This chart is awesome. I really like this a lot. Did you have anything? I'm sorry, I, I kind of interrupted you there. Did you have anything no. else on it? No. Okay. Let's go to this one here. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, global net liquidity. It's not a perfect measure, but you know, it's kind of the best we got with some of this public data. There's obviously a lot of kind of the so-called liquidity in like in the global system. You know, maybe contrast to say Bitcoin, which is a very transparent system. A lot of this is very, very. Uh, it's, it's a black box, but we do see we can see you know G4 central banks and we can see uh you know the 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 reverse repo facility and the treasury general account as kind of gauges for global liquidity so when the reverse repo facility which still has i think a trillion uh, or two in there and the treasury general account when those run down it adds money it adds liquidity into the system so mm-hmm. you know when when the tga has when the treasury has a trillion dollars in their checking account essentially that's liquidity that they've taken from the system, right? Mm-hmm. If you pay taxes, I think I think today's tax day. If you pay taxes, that's liquidity coming out, and when they you know spend that back into the economy, that's liquidity coming in. So we can just kind of aggregate this and kind of get a gauge for global net liquidity. And there's a bunch of different ways we can measure this, but essentially, kind of just charted this and then the 12 month change. And I think in the next one, I think in slide seven, I actually overlay this the S and P 500 um, with this, and it's you know since. And I think if you even go basically to the great financial crisis, it's, you know, it's a one-to-one, not correlation because it's not, correlation isn't causation and you can't chart two different time series and say that they, they cause each other. But essentially this kind of confirms, right? It confirms via the eye test what we already know, that capital markets, as we know them today, are, have been zombified. That it's, you know, it's, it's a passive zombie that's completely dependent on global liquidity. Global liquidity is contracting, markets are falling. Global liquidity is pumping, um, money's injecting into the system, capital markets rally. Uh, that's the game. And anybody I think that's pretended that's not the game is uh, is fooling themselves. <laughs> I love this chart. This is a great chart. Isn't it amazing? Like when you're looking at the S&P 500, just like how it's, if it was like a signal, 
you know, how it's just like amplifying as you're going through time here. I, I just can't imagine what this is going to look like in the coming five years, but great chart. Let's go to this one here. Yeah. So this is, uh, so I got, I got a bunch going on here and the top chart, the top pane is, is us total debt, public debt to GDP at 120%. There's some great stats out there about when, uh, sovereign nations see their debt rise above 120%. There's basically, I think it was, this stat was in 2020, but, uh, it was like 51, uh, or 52 out of 53 of these, uh, or 51 out of 53 of the nations had defaulted. Uh, the two that hadn't defaulted. And and by default, I mean, in implicit or explicit terms, explicit mm-hmm. meaning they say, nope, sorry, you know, sorry, creditors, you're not getting your money back. Implicit default, meaning, okay, here's your money back and like, you know, <laughs> printing it and the money's worthless. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the two cases that, you know, that hasn't happened is Japan and the United States, right? So ask yourself, like as a creditor of the US government, anybody that holds a bond or even treasury bills, and I say this is someone that has, you know, a little bit of cash and short end treasury bills at, you know, four and a half, five percent, whatever it is. But if you hold long duration debt, right, like and you're getting, you know, three, three and a half percent yield, how's the US gonna pay you back? Because they're not gonna default. You know, like the, the debt ceiling's coming and everybody's kind of shaking and quivering about, you know, what happens if they don't find a resolution to the debt ceiling? They will, of course they will. The debt ceiling will be raised, of course. But it's going to be paid back by debasing the currency. It's just like, it's literally just a simple math equation. And anybody that hasn't kind of run these numbers, it's kind of interesting, Preston. I, I should have included this in the chart. I encourage everybody to uh, go to the, the CBO, uh, Congressional Budget Office website, and look at their modeling for the next 10 years. And look at the projections for the employment, unemployment rate, for inflation, and for, and not even just the next 10 years, but they actually map out what they think the next like 50 years or so looks like. And they have total debt. Uh, public debt to GDP going from 120% to about like 200% over the next 40, 50 years. And that's just a laughable projection. Like they don't even hide what they're, what, what they're saying. So it's saying that the debt's up only and inf- the inf- inflation, they, they think it's going to actually go and go back to 2%, but even at 2%, right? That's still compounding. The money's still losing value. And then they, think, <laughs> you know, and then they think, you know, unemployment's just going to have a little blip and then go back to three or 4% forever. While, you know, social security, the Ponzi scheme continues to go on. It's like, it's a pretty, pretty laughing stock projection and system, but it's, you know, anybody that's actually looked at these numbers knows it's completely wrong. It's done, you know, by academics in a boardroom with no basis in reality. So yeah, like as, as a long-term oriented thinker, it's like, why would I hold long duration debt for other than just like, you know, a skimpy trade, well, right? I'm- like there's no, there's no reason. And I don't think there's anybody coming to the table within the government to raise the flag because if they do and they say, hey, start using these numbers at higher inflation rates and, and whatnot, what's going to happen is everything that they're trying to do is going to become unaffordable except for maybe three things. And so whatever those, all those other things are, are going to be canceled or like if there's actual real planning taking place, they're all going to be canceled. They're all going to be killed. And then the, the couple of priorities that would still remain inside of that, that budget that is actually left would be the only things that would be funded. And so this doesn't work from getting votes from your congressional area that maybe has the work being performed for all these things that would be canceled if we start using numbers from reality. There's this disincentive from all the actors around government to nod their head and say, yeah, it's 2%. These are the numbers. So you can see how how it's just the incentive structure is just so broke all around these people that are feeding the numbers into this system. They don't want reality. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com kyle you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things how do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies yeah so i used to have a ton of issues with this and that was until i started using yahoo finance Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Okay, let's go back to the uh, deck here. If there's anything else that uh, you wanted to highlight, uh, we can go to the next one. 
Uh, this one's more kind of a, sh- a short-term thing. It's just showing job openings and job openings per person. There's about 10 million job openings and uh, the job openings per unemployed persons. Sorry. Which, and also, by the way, like after the COVID shock, there was a big percentage of the workforce that just essentially retired or, you know, isn't on the official hunt mm-hmm. for, for full-time jobs. Uh, and there's actually like, you know, many people working two jobs, right? Or a bunch of part-time jobs. We can, you can argue whether the actual unemployment rate is three and some change percent. But I think this this is just kind of a short term gauge for we got some uh, we got some pain or some kind of contraction in the labor market first before before this thing really uh, hits the fan and they mm-hmm. and they turn on the the printers. Yeah, and I mean, it, based on the the previous cycle, it's looking like that's a year and a half kind of process, two year process for the numbers to really kind of fully capitulate down. Yep. Okay, and here we go. This is the. <laughs> Look yeah. at that. Look at that. Now, what, what do you think about the 3.5, Dylan? Like what I think about yeah, the validity like, of the number? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't think that the labor market is the strongest it's been in, in 50 years. <laughs> uh, but, you know, officially in the data, right, it's saying that the labor market is the tightest uh, it's been in 50 years, right? It's like the same thing with the inflation rate. It's like, well, is inflation rate right or wrong? CPI right or wrong? It's like, well, you know, these, these are the, the numbers our overlords at the Federal Reserve are looking at and referring to. So the, the kind of the meta is this is what this is the game, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, anybody that's long-term oriented doesn't really care. Like if you're thinking about, you know, and buying Bitcoin and holding it for two generations, like I don't care what the unemployment rate is now or going to be next year, but I think they tighten until the labor market uh, sees some pain. I would love to see a breakout of highly skilled labor versus you know, completely unskilled labor and what the metrics look like from, you know, an unemployment standpoint. And that's something that I haven't really dug into, but I think you could maybe see some really interesting trends there too. I suspect you would see some interesting trends there. Okay. The M2. Yeah. M2 is, I mean, it's not a perfect measure of money supply, right? There's bank reserves and everything else in there, but I mean, you can just kind of take a a left end of the bell curve approach here, right? We're in a, Mm -hmm. we're in a, a monetary system that requires perpetual credit expansion to persist and exist when money supply contracts things things break like the the kind of the, the buzzword or the the macro thesis in, in 2022 when everybody was referring including myself to the fed tightening cycle was like well they're going to tighten until things break and like you know people would be like well that's a cop out you know what's what's going to break and it was like well we don't know we don't know what's going to break and what broke at least in the short term and i think it's kind of the first warning shot of problems underneath the hood was what broke was the, the bank's unrealized losses on their bond portfolios. That's what broke. What broke was the collateralized uh, guilts in the pension system in, in the United Kingdom. That's what broke, right? That the, the duration losses on those bonds as they had to recognize, realize those losses as that collateral got marked to market. That's what at least temporarily broke. And we don't know. I think there's more to break. As this current cycle plays out, everyone's saying commercial real estate. What what are your? I know you've posted a couple charts online about that. What are your thoughts around that one? I think private equity. I mean, commercial real estate and like a lot of these illiquid kind of like Blackstone type investment vehicles. um, The mark to market is 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 laughable. Like I I mean, I don't hyper focus on it too much, but like you know, it's like private equity as this like magic vehicle where you outperform public equity markets. On uh, you know a lot lower realized levels of volatility is not based in reality actually whatsoever. And if there's any sort of redemptions, you know, for the Black Rocks or Blackstones of the world, 
on their private portfolios, they're going to realize that uh, they're going to have to take quite the impairment loss. Yeah. No doubt about it. I'm just curious on the timeline for something because it's so illiquid relative to, you know, publicly traded equity and and bonds and whatnot. So but everything I'm reading, that's where it's that's where the next shoe to drop is is coming from. And then the the compound impact to community banks or the smaller banking sector because of their exposure to commercial real estate, I guess is just nuts. But hey, let's transition just a little bit into a different topic. I know you were doing quite a bit of research on Binance and some of their situation, especially coming out of the whole FTX debacle. Where do you think they stand right now? What, what, what kind of research have you done recently? Is this going to be an exchange that kind of gets by through, through the bottom of this cycle and continues to exist and is a key player? Or do you see uh, more pain on the horizon through them? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because uh, the crypto space is unique where, you know, it's one of the few spaces where you call a spade a spade and people get mad at you for doing so. <laughs> and I, I maybe maybe that's not unique to crypto, but at least that was what I kind of came to realize after the FTX debacle, which, you know, was identifiable, at least in the late stages of it, if you were paying attention to the numbers and, and just the math of it and looked at it with an unbiased view, right? Like a value to balance sheet and all of that. I was like, all right, well, Let's take a look at the next guy, right? We look at, look at Binance and, you know, I log on to CoinMarketCap, which I rarely ever visit to look at, uh, you know, the cesspool that is the crypto market. And, you know, there was BNB. Um, and I, I uh, took a look at the USD chart and it was looking, you know, abnormally strong. It was up 9x, you know, since the start of 2021. Uh, I looked at it in Bitcoin terms, and this is in late November. And BNB BTC was chugging to new all-time highs on on basically every day. And so that was like, for me, it was a really big red flag in the sense that crypto is, I guess you could say maybe in a similar way to like, you know, certain facets of the equity market, right? Like if something trades with a high realized volatility, you could talk, you know, maybe think about like an ARK invest or, you know, high beta tech stocks, right? Compared to like low volatility value, right? If it trades with a higher volatility to the upside, you know, trades with a high beta, high realized volatility, high implied volatility, it usually, I mean, this it's, you know, finance is, is similar to kind of physics, gravity in a way. It'll trade with a high, higher levels of volatility to the downside, right? Like this is just how it works or how it should work in theory. And, and, you know, Binance coin, right? BNB outperformed basically every, Every single crypto, including Bitcoin, by a large margin in the bear market, where you know it served as as massive beta, just like a lot of pretty garbage illiquid altcoins did in the bull cycle, and in the in the bear cycle, the thing that traded with three times the realized volatility of Bitcoin in the bull market, right? So it traded it traded as a as a beta to Bitcoin, it massively outperformed Bitcoin on the upside, right? And you can just attribute that to illiquidity and flows, and to the downside, Binance BNB Binance Coin. Uh, traded with the same level of volatility as Bitcoin to the downside and actually outperformed the, the BND BTC went up. It outperformed Bitcoin to the downside. So for me, that was a big red flag. It was okay. This, there's something wrong with this exchange rate, but I don't see a world where BND, this token that was spun up from nothing that Binance uh, and CZ gave 50% of the allocation to themselves that only trades really on Binance um, that started to go parabolic at the same time that FDT did. I don't think that the mark-to-market exchange rate is real on this. And CZ says that they, you know, he has 99% of his net worth in the thing on Twitter. 
and 1% in Bitcoin. And obviously that could be like, that probably is a lie, or at least, you know, is a little bit of an exaggeration or hyperbole. But CZ says that they never leverage against it and he never sells it. And for me, it was just like, it was quite the statement because like, if I think about the two things that you do when you buy an asset, you buy like, you know, particularly in money, right? You buy, like, if you buy Bitcoin, you either buy it to part with it at some point, or you use it as collateral to leverage. There's only two things you can do with Bitcoin. Like, like you either sell it or you leverage against it to borrow capital. That's it. That's all you can do. And so he was like, you know, we never sell it and uh, we've never used it to collateralize against. So, okay, that's quite the statement, um, considering that BNB was worth $100 billion at the top of the market. So you, you, you never did anything with it. Okay, I guess. And so, you know, here we are. Uh, when I first put out that kind of the tweet thread that was breaking down my concerns with BNB in, in particular, but it was worth about 3 million Bitcoin. I think it's worth about 1 million eight right now in terms of the, the, the BNB market cap in Bitcoin terms. And so like, you know, people were saying like, you were rooting for Binance to fail. You know, you, you thought you were going to like, you were encouraging a bank run. It's like, no, you know, they, CZ says they hold every asset one-to-one. I'm saying people should evaluate counterparty risk and they should, you know, assess this considering what happened in the space. They have a whole lot of crypto assets. They have, you know, 500,000 Bitcoin. They, you know, they published a proof of reserves. They have all this Ethereum stable coins, but we see that there's plenty of question marks, including of which you've published a proof of reserves audit. That's like, that's what they called it. There was no proof of reserves. There's proof of assets. It's like, here's my assets, guys. And then someone said, show me your liabilities. And they said, ah, well, that's hard to calculate. Um, there's also instances, right? Like FDX collapsed, CZ puffs out his chest, says, we're really strong and we're different. You know, everybody come to us. And actually here's a billion dollars to, for industry recovery, to help the, the industry flourish and to help the crypto economy start fresh, right? We're going to bail out people that need it. Sounds familiar, right? All of a sudden I'm like, okay, like this, like, let me just take a look here. A billion dollars of BUSD. Great CZ. Thank you for being very uh, generous and, and altruistic. And I clicked on Etherscan. I clicked the billion dollar BUSD deposit, which was in a brand new white labeled address on Etherscan. And it came from Binance Wallet 8. And Binance Wallet 8 is a customer funds wallet, right? Okay. And in a kind of a sleight of hand where like no one really seemed to notice, a couple people called them out on it. And Binance releases a blog post the next day and was like, you know, hey, to clarify, like, and they said this in, you know, four paragraphs of jargon and word salad. They said, oh, to clarify, you know, these are not customer funds. These are corporate funds that we keep in the same address as customer funds because our security practices are so good. And I was just looking at this and I'm tweeting like, guys, this is a massive red flag. This literally makes no sense. Like this is asinine. It's crazy. Security practices. Like what are we talking about here? At the very least, they're severely incompetent. And at the very worst, this is, you know, the F word. This is fraud. Yeah. Right. Like, and people were like, Bud, Bud, you, you know, you were rooting for them to crash. And at that point, I kind of just decided to leave it alone. I'm like, I'm not going to beat a dead horse here. I've aired out my thoughts. Uh, I'm not rooting for anybody to, you know, I'm not rooting for people to lose money. I'm not rooting for innocent people that probably wouldn't be able to withdraw their funds or know what's going on to lose everything. I'm just putting it out there and using my public audience and presence to say, hey, this is what I see. It doesn't add up. There's a, there's a real clear history here of actions that we literally just saw this other guy do and, and they collapsed and Binance is an order of magnitude bigger. So and I think it is a problem. There's plenty of question marks and I don't think there's many answers, but I don't think there's a high probability 
that those problems get all aired out, uh, at least not without some interference from uh, the three letter agencies, which probably might come. And I, and I should clarify that, like, I'm in no way, a, a, you know, a simp for the, uh, you know, the heavy hand of the state. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, no, yeah. But I think that's, you know, that's the five minute for, rundown of some of the stuff. From a probability standpoint, as you're looking at like what comes next from the state, do you see them continuing to ratchet down on Binance or do you think that they're just so large and lawyered up that it, they're just going to be able to de- defend themselves against the state, at least in the U.S.? It seems like the U.S. Yeah. is coming down hard on them. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because so BUSD was their... Uh the the tethers existed and persisted and there's obviously there was a past question marks of tether and you know there's still people that say that that tether is you know uh, a black box to which you know we could probably spend some time talking about that maybe we go there maybe we don't but busd was kind of the binance wrapped stablecoin or the binance you know white labeled stablecoin that paxos issued and that got up to like 20 billion dollars with the value and uh, you know, CZ did this nice, cool trick where you know they took these assets, not just BUSD, but also Bitcoin, Ether, all these other crypto assets, put them in a in a smart contract address, and then issued the same tokens on uh, BNB chain. And the you know the funny thing was, we can see that they uh, they took uh, this these this this collateral, this deposit address um, that was supposed to to represent the peg, right? So hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick this in a one way peg, and then I'm gonna issue it on another chain. Uh, and we can see that they were actually actively changing those addresses. They were, sometimes they were over collateralized. Sometimes those assets were under collateralized. And Paxos and the SEC basically, not the SEC, I think it was the, the New York, it was the New York regulatory body. Basically, I mean, the data forensics came in there and said, oh, wait, you guys were actually issuing this BUSD token under collateralized. You were minting billions of dollars at, at a time of, of, of free money, at least temporarily, unreserved. They basically came in and said, okay, you can no longer create BUSD. You have to unwind this and you got a year's time to unwind it. So BUSD is gone. Now, <laughs> this dominant stablecoin of choice is TUSD. TUSD being, if you go on the website, the banking partners of TUSD are Signature, Silvergate, and uh, I, forget the other, I forget the other one. So I think the TLDR is the dollar rails are going to, and we've already seen this, the dollar rails on Binance and really any crypto actor that doesn't have a sterling uh, relationship with regulatory bodies is going to get that their dollar rails are going to get beheaded. Maybe they can, you know, stay afloat and, and, you know, figure out and, you know, maybe they deal with stable coins or crypto assets natively, whatever it may be. But a lot of these systems and not just Binance, I'm not even even referring to Binance, but a lot of these games, FTX, they could persist and exist because they had fresh inflows of, of dollar capital to keep the gig going. And so Binance obviously is a big war chest. Their customers at least have a big war chest. I don't think they collapse tomorrow. But from a probability perspective, I think at the very, very least, and this was the point of my original thread regarding Binance, was that the exchange rate of BNB, BTC, the exchange rate of this token is, is a lie. The mark-to-market exchange rate is not real. And so I would love to short the thing if I could. The problem is the only real place you can trade the thing is on Binance. Right. So like is that you know, you're trading against CZ and you're trading against that 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 team over there. So I mean, you know, I would love to borrow a large sum of this thing if I could find a reliable counterparty, but that's not uh I don't think that's in the cards. But when you're playing against I mean, Dylan, when you're playing against somebody that you think is a bad actor, like sometimes they can pers- they can carry that shenanigans out way longer than 
your your cost to borrow. So yep. yeah, yeah, definitely want to steer clear of that one. So Dylan, when we think about fidelity, you know, huge staple of legacy finance. There now, people can go on there. They can buy Bitcoin. They continue to hold the Bitcoin. You can't withdraw the Bitcoin, which I think is really. So you're buying a paper receipt of Bitcoin that Fidelity is hopefully holding on your behalf. When I look at that model, I obviously don't like that model. I want people to be able to withdraw and take self-custody. Is this Fidelity dipping their toe in the water to make sure that they don't piss off regulators and to make sure that they're doing everything according to regulatory standards so that they're not pulling a Binance or a Coinbase where they're just running with scissors? and potentially getting themselves in trouble so that they have a dominant position in the space? Or is this the Wall Streeters trying to get all of this under control and never going to offer self-custody to their customers to be able to conduct withdrawals so that they can continue to have a paper Bitcoin market and uh, basically turn it into gold? which is highly manipulated. Well, I don't know that it's highly manipulated, but but it could be highly manipulated via a paper derivatives market. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have any uh, inside info into the Fidelity operations, but I will say that, as you know uh, very well, that the key difference between Bitcoin and gold is the ability to self-custody in a matter of minutes for basically no cost, right? I can move a billion dollars of Bitcoin for five bucks. And it can settle on chain in 10 minutes. You know, worst case, it settles in an hour and, and you can pay up to have it settle in the next block for no marginal cost whatsoever. Because of that, I think that even if Fidelity doesn't have those withdrawals on now, the market will demand it and then they won't be in a dominant position if they don't give that feature. Like, so it's obviously a different customer base, but we've seen a lot of entrants in the space, like from like legacy fintech apps, uh, Venmo, PayPal, Robinhood. I'm not sure if Venmo has turned on those withdrawals. I, I think someone will have to, as they're listening, will have to correct me on this. But I know Robinhood, which was kind of like a, a black box for their crypto operations for a while. You could buy Bitcoin and Ether and Dogecoin and whatever else, but you could never withdraw it. The demand was so was so strong uh, from their customers. They got so much inbound. When can we withdraw? When can we withdraw? That they finally enabled it. I'm sure there's still a lot of people that hold it on on that site. But I think from an institutional space... There's not as much of a demand, maybe, to hold the Bitcoin on a cold card, but the ability to do something almost makes the the fidelities of the world have to play play by the rules, right? And not to say that they wouldn't play by the rules, but if you you know if I'm buying gold on your behalf, Preston, and you never redeem it because you have no ability to redeem it or withdraw it, you know I may or may not buy the gold if you ask me or may not, right? Like so, but with Bitcoin, if you can, if you have the ability to do something. Then I have to I have to put myself in a position where I have to honor that if that request comes. Uh, I think that's fundamental difference with the Bitcoin market versus the gold market, which which a lot of people like seemingly don't grasp. I've had like my mainstream uh, media appearances uh, of the last you know six months or so. Literally every single one, not even mainstream, but just you know like like media whatever. Gold is always brought up every single time. Well, yeah. it sounds like you're describing gold, Dylan. It's like, well, no, I'm not. I actually have a smartphone in my hand and I can't own gold on this smartphone. I yeah. can't verify gold from this smartphone. And so it's, it's pretty obvious to me. It's obvious to you where the game is going mm-hmm. um, and that no one's going to want to take delivery of, you know, five tons of gold, but I can take delivery of a Bitcoin transaction from my smartphone or my laptop 
that's connected to your node to do a full audit that it's real. Yeah. Yeah. It it audited the entire supply of Bitcoin and all of the the fancy charts that we showed at the beginning of the Bitcoin supply and all these exchange metrics. You can pull that data from that node and it's only 200 gigabytes of data. You can have it on a MacBook, right? Like it's, it's a pretty uh, elegant, beautiful system. And obviously, seemingly, there's, there's still a massive uh, education gap about what, what this thing actually is. What's the, the status of the mining? I think the last time we talked, the mining industry was looking nasty. The price was way down. The hash rate was significantly high. It looks like they've gotten a little bit of price relief, but how would you describe that right now if you were going to give the status of the, of the mining industry? I think we talked in like <laughs> late November, so it was definitely very bleak. I think hash rates at, at still screaming towards all-time highs. The price bump has obviously given miners a little bit of relief. I think hash price, which is minor revenue per exahash, kind of standardizes minor revenue in Bitcoin terms or dollar terms relative to hash rate. And that's about 40% off the highs. You're off, I'm sorry, 40% off the all-time lows. And this thing over time only goes lower. As supply chains drops, as hash rate goes up, that hash price metric continues to go lower. So they've seen some relief, but I think... Uh, Really, when you're thinking about miners, right? When you when you're evaluating the miner investment, and this is for you, you know, it could be public equities, it could be physical ASICs. Not only like, I mean, if you're actually deploying physical ASICs or buying public public equity, you have to understand that you have to be a supreme operator to actually outpace this Bitcoin thing over the long term. But over the short to intermediate term, regardless of of you know how efficient you are at the margin. It's really a game of just price outpace hash rate or just hash rate out, outpace price. Because if hash rate is outpacing price, you're going to probably get wrecked. And that's why you know it's the most competitive business in the world, even though it's still a very niche, small market um, compared to other industries, is because hash rate continues to go up forever. And those ASICs that you bought in two years, in four years, are going to not be bottom barrel, but they're going to be far from the top of the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and those, those ASICs don't get thrown away. They get deployed somewhere else where the marginal cost of energy is cheaper. That's right. Um, so it's, it's a brutally competitive business. It's not very well understood. I, you know, I would love to see a poll of how many people on Wall Street could describe the difficulty adjustment if you asked, because <laughs> um, I don't think it'd be very high. But, you know, let, you know, let that, alone have them describe how it's incentivizing cheap, free energy around the world for where all those rigs are are being deployed because if you're a miner and you own one of these rigs and it's 4 years old like you're you're looking to sell it somewhere where somebody's getting energy for free right yep. it's just it's really fascinating to see the incentive around that alone and the incentive for setting up shop in an area where you really have a competitive moat with respect to cheap energy yeah i think yeah. a lot of the like kind of a more long-term thesis is that you know these big box public you know miners you know i think some of them will, will do okay but i think it's re- going to be really hard to be a you know a massive massive operation physically domiciled in one or two locations one because of regulatory risk and uh kind of jurisdiction risk but two it's just it's it's a race to the bottom right mm-hmm. and even if you're you know located in I'm not even taking a shot or a jab at, at a specific miner but even if you're at like you know Rockdale Texas with cheap power there's somewhere with cheaper power, probably, yeah. uh, you know, that's going to be able to mine 24 seven, probably for no cost, right? Never mind, like, you know, state sponsored actors, because that's another rabbit hole. But I mean, I think the miners are interesting. I'll, I'll probably, uh, probably scoop some up in the next year or so, maybe after the halving. 
as a trade. But uh, I mean, you look plot any of these things in Bitcoin terms, take all the miners, you can go in trading view or another website, take the tickers and then plot them, divide that ticker by BTC USD, and then look at a long-term performance and they all underperform, right? Like that's the, the signal. And it's not like, you know, it's not a shot at marathon or riot or clean spark or any of them. It's, you know, I just listed off three, but it's just, it's just the reality that hash rate is going up forever. Yeah. Uh, and the supply issuance is going down. And so on a long time frame, like cyclically, these things will, will outperform Bitcoin by 5x, 10x during three, six, nine. That's what I was periods. just going to say. I was going to say, but if you're looking for something that has a lot of vol and you're trying to, you know, really uh, get fancy with it, well, have fun because there's, yeah. there's a lot of vol. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Not recommending that, by the way. <laughs> and and one other thing, the, the science is conclusive down there in Rockdale, I hear. <laughs> yeah, that was honestly, that was uh, just absolutely magnificent Pierre. By, by Pierre and uh, the guys at Riot. That was just great. And it was, it was amazing how many people missed that, just the joke that, you know, oh, yeah, completely yeah, yeah. over their head. Over like, their heads. Hilarious. I actually had a, I have a t-shirt that's coming that, that is a picture of Pierre holding up the, the monitor, the CO2, and it says the science is conclusive. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Bitcoin doesn't emit carbon. Oh my. Hilarious. Dude, we could talk all day. I really appreciated this. This was always fun. I always learn a ton from you and um, because you just have such a beat on what's happening in this space. Unprecedented. And it is such a delight to sit down and chat with you, Dylan. So thank you for making time and coming on on the show. Appreciate the invite back, Preston. It's been an honor. Give people a handoff if they're, if they're just hearing you for the first time. Cool. Yeah. You can uh, find me on Twitter at Dylan Leclerc underscore. I publish research with Bitcoin Magazine Pro. Doing a couple other things. I'm also on like Noster. I don't even know how to share that. Um, not on as much as, as you or as much as I should be. But uh, yeah, I got a couple of cool things in the works working on some some Python stuff like we talked about at the beginning. So hopefully we'll be able to share some more with you guys. And um, I can also share you later tonight some of the links to the the trading view layouts that I oh awesome that I shared. Yeah, no, that would be fantastic. And we'll have all that in the show notes. Dylan, thank you for making time and coming on the show. Thanks, Preston. See you. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.